this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Samantha Meyer, Licensed Professional Counselor Associate, supervised by Natasha Justo, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, who will be discussing her practice in an area of specialty, mental health accessibility and mutual aid. Welcome to the show, Samantha. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, tell us about your credentials and experience. Sure, so I am a licensed professional counselor associate and uh, my experience is in several different settings. Um, I started out my career working for Integral Care, which is the county mental health authority, doing community-based uh, counseling and case management. Um, and I've also worked in a residential setting, um, a residential treatment center for teens. Um, so working with adolescents is another um, area of focus for me. Um, and now I'm in private practice at Moving Parts Psychotherapy. Okay, cool. Now, I know uh, LPC associates generally don't accept insurance. I think there's maybe one or two insurance plans that have started allowing associates to bill under their supervisor's NPI. I think it's the primary one is Cigna. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm assuming you probably don't accept I insurance. I don't. No, unfortunately okay. not. Do you have a, a sliding scale or reduced fee? I do. I do. So I have a a couple different avenues for sliding scale referrals. Um, One of them is um, a website called OpenPath. So I accept uh, clients through OpenPath. They have sliding scale. Um, It's like a a membership that clients can access and then they have access to um, providers at a sliding scale. Um, And then also just to the uh, referrals I get through, um, through moving parts. I also offer a sliding scale to those clients as well. Cool. Do you have weekend or evening appointments? 
I do evenings two days a week. Um, I don't do weekends. That's that's my work life balance. <laughs> I, weekends are family and friend time. Uh, but I do uh, right now. It's uh, Tuesdays and Wednesdays are my evenings. Okay, cool. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? It is my first career. I am 27, so I haven't had much time for <laughs> for a second career. But um, yeah, it's um, kind of what I always knew I wanted to do. Yeah, I figure it as much, but I didn't want to judge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never um, know, I guess. <laughs> um, what what drew you to being a therapist? Um, it was a lot of things. I've always been a very uh, nosy person <laughs> who <laughs> wanted to know everyone's business. Um, and um, a chisme. <laughs> yeah. It's Spanish for gossip. Yeah. <laughs> I was really lucky um, to have parents that were always very open about their mental health um, and allowed me to be open about my mental health um, and were open about their experiences in therapy. Um, so I, I knew from a really young age, like that's a job that someone can have um, and it is a way of, of helping people. And um, I think initially, you know, I, I was just like, that'd be a really cool job just get to talk to people all day and help them out and um and know their secrets and mm -hmm. I think for for a nosy kid that was uh that really liked um really liked other people and was interested in other people um it just seemed like a cool career to have um and my dad um he went back to school to study psychology um when I was probably like 10 ish um and he would come home and talk about what he was learning um I'm a twin. I have a twin sister. So he oh. would tell us about the twin studies. <laughs> um, nice. And it just piqued my interest. I was just like, this is a really cool thing to study. And, you know, it was, it was one of those things that just stuck um, as I went through college and, and grad school. The interest stayed there. So you enjoy, as the kids say these days, sipping the tea. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> See, Filling I the tea, cool. sipping the tea. <laughs> And, you know, I, I would, though, like to reframe being nosy as curiosity. Yeah, it was very much so. I was I was a very curious kid. Um, and I think the the nosiness came in when I would um, I had a tendency to eavesdrop. Uh, <laughs> I do think that came from curiosity. Um, but um, also sometimes I just look back and I'm just like, man, I just wanted to know everything. <laughs> Uh -huh. Well, I mean, I think curiosity is a really important, like, what would that be, like, quality, I suppose, for a therapist to have. Sure, yeah. I, I think I rely on it a lot in my clinical work, um, just being able to follow my own curiosity as a way of understanding my clients and as a way of opening up new avenues of discussion. Um, I think yeah. it's, it's really helpful. And I, I'm glad I found a, a career where that quality is seen as a positive thing. <laughs> okay. So um, what modalities do you use with folks? I'm pretty eclectic. Um, so I, um, I'm very trauma focused. Um, so the, the main trauma processing modality I will use um, is EMDR. Okay. Um, and I, I love that modality. Um, I also, so originally, um, uh, my, my first modality I was trained in, uh, 
Well, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it was a motivational interviewing. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. I actually think that hard reduction approach. Um, yeah. It was actually before that um, in grad school, I worked for um, UT's alcohol harm reduction program. Oh, uh, cool. cool. Yeah. So that's where I, I picked up the MI stuff. Um, but I do think that harm reduction approach still informs a lot of my work. Um, and then after that, I learned um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which was it was the first modality where I was like, oh my God, this is how my brain works, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's really helpful, I think, uh, in a lot of the work that I do with teens, um, actually, I think just teaching those fundamental skills of, um, you know, recognizing your emotions, being able to name them and being able to challenge uh, negative thought patterns is, is I, I love being able to teach that and learn alongside my um my clients, both the kids and adults, um, in doing that. Um, and then, um, recently I've been learning, um, internal family systems therapy cool. and I am loving it. <laughs> um, so that's also, yeah, yeah. That's also something that I've been incorporating into my practice. Um, and I found just enormously helpful with, uh, my clients and, um, I, I suppose that's a pr- probably a good overview, but, um, I'm always kind of looking for that opportunity to learn that next thing. And I'm a total theory nerd. So um, any chance <laughs> I have for, um, for trainings and, and, you know, specific, uh, especially the, the different trauma processing modalities, I feel like I could, I could be learning forever. Um, all oh, the different sure. modalities. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to do that, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music, pets, etc.? Yeah, so um, let's see. I've been in Austin for, um, I guess, about eight years now. It's, it's since undergrad, really, so it's been a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love the live music scene here when it is happening. It's just, just now starting to come back a little bit. Yeah. Um, but live music is um, a big hobby of mine. Um especially seeing local acts. Um, I just love being in a, a place where I can do that. Um, and I'm also a writer. Uh, writing is another hobby I have on the side. I like to write um, fiction. Um, right now I'm, I'm working on a sci-fi novel, <laughs> um, which is a lot of fun. Cool. And um, I do have a pet. Um, I have a cat named uh, Teddy. Um, he's named after uh, Theodore Lawrence from Little Women. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got him right before the pandemic. So of course now we both have separation anxiety, um, but he is the cutest cat in the world in my unbiased opinion. <laughs> totally unbiased. Totally unbiased. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, mental health accessibility and mutual aid. So what are your thoughts about accessibility of mental health services in Texas and, and more specifically in Austin? Um, I guess generally I would say it's, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good <laughs> um, I think there are a lot of barriers to accessibility, um, cost being the main one. You know, I think mental health care is prohibitively expensive for a lot of people, really the majority of people. Um, and insurance, um, even when people have insurance, it can be very difficult to access mental health care because it's not guaranteed that you're going to have coverage for mental health benefits specifically, or even if you do, that that coverage is going to be sufficient. Um, right. And then without insurance, you know, I, I do think that um, that Austin 
really tries to innovate and find ways to um, to help people access affordable mental health care. I think there are a lot of really amazing um, practices here, group practices that are specifically focused on affordable care and accessibility. Um, I did my uh, one of my practicums and grad school at Capital Area Counseling, mm-hmm. um, which is a really amazing, amazing place for that. Um, and I think it's an example of um, just the ways that people in the city have tried to innovate to increase accessibility. Um, but even somewhere like Capital Area, wait lists are really long, you know, right. there's just such a need for it. And I think the the experience of um, you know, people trying to access care and, you know, experience as, as a provider is just this overwhelming feeling of, you know, there will, there's just not enough to meet the need for affordable care. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd imagine that there are significant disparities in mental health accessibility based on a variety of factors, including race, gender, etc. Do you happen to have any stats on this? Sure. Yeah. So um, I guess the the best metric we have, even though this is not a a perfect metric, um, but it is the one we have the most data on is um, rates of of people who are uninsured. Um, So if we look at Texas as a whole, um, before COVID, um, one in five Texans were uninsured. And now that number after COVID is one in three Texans is uninsured. Yeah. Yeah, and that uh, that rate of um, lack of insurance is higher for Black Texans than it is for White Texans, and it's actually double for Latinx uh, Texans than it is for White Texans. Interesting. Do do we know what factors are contributing to that, or what what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of those compounding disparities in um, employment. I think we can look at um, labor trends a lot to um, to understand this because it, it, the U.S. insurance is tied to employment, and I think there are certain jobs where um, health insurance comes with that job, and there are certain jobs where it doesn't. And I think that because Texas has so few worker protections. Um, there are becoming more and more jobs that do not come with health insurance, a lot more contracting, a lot more, you know, gig jobs. And I think um, people that have um, less social capital in general and are oppressed in, you know, multiple ways are more likely to only have access to jobs that come without those benefits, you know. Um, So I think it's a lot of compounding trends there that create those disparities. One program I definitely want to mention on the show is MAP, our medical access program, Mm -hmm. Central Health. That's a really great program for people um, and and really helps with with medical care, especially for folks who have chronic conditions. Um, can Can you think of any other resources? Um, yeah, so um, I think uh, just th- what one resource that I do want to shout out that is another um, local group that I believe they're they're new and unhelpful during COVID is um, it, it's, I think it's called the Austin Wellness Network. I'll, I'll double check that, but it's a website um, that um, they've compiled a list of affordable um, mental health care services in the Austin area. It's a really uh, comprehensive directory and they are just really trying hard to connect people that need affordable care with providers that provide that. So um, I do want to shout them out because I, I, um, I really love the work that they're doing. 
What's the Boston Alumnus Network? I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we talked briefly about this just now, but it's often the case that even though somebody has health insurance, they may still be unable to access mental health services. And one of the reasons for this is, uh, you know, that particular insurance policy may have a mental health exclusion, um, for example, uh, similar to how a lot of insurance companies will also have a, a transgender exclusionary policy in which they won't cover any transgender-related care. But there are other reasons for that as well. Um, what more can you tell us? Sure. So um, another reason that a lot of people cite is even if they do have mental health benefits, sometimes that copay um, is still not affordable. It can be a really high copay, and they might technically, quote-unquote, have benefits, but it's not... Um, enough to really make care accessible. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, there might not be enough providers in network that accept their insurance. You know, I hear a lot of the time that, you know, people fill up and insurance companies don't always um, maintain a large enough network of providers to serve their customers. Um, and that's a huge issue. Um, I think another another thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, mental health care also looks like medication sometimes and medication costs can be prohibitively high, especially for folks that need that brand uh, medication and there might not be a generic available um, that can run up the cost very quickly. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Another thing also is that people change jobs. They get different insurance and they can't keep their providers that they've built that connection with. Um, and that is really difficult for people. And I think makes accessing care difficult because so much of the success of um, the work that we do as counselors, you know, depends on that relationship. So Absolutely. if you have, um, you know, outside forces come between that relationship um, can really disrupt care for a lot of folks. Yeah, and another thing I want to mention, too, is some insurance plans have a really high deductible and they won't cover any service until that deductible is met, which leaves the, the client paying the provider's contracted rate until they've met their deductible, which can be, I mean, depending on the insurance, it can be reasonable or it can be pretty high. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So I would call that underinsured. Yeah, I think that's what we see a lot is we see, you know, in Texas, a lot of people are uninsured and a lot more people are underinsured, especially right. when it comes to mental health care. Right. So in, in thinking about mutual aid, what are the principles of mutual aid? Sure. So I want to um, speak on this and, and I can really, you know, speak on this from the perspective of ATX Mental Health Fund, which is um, the mutual aid fund uh, that I founded. But um, when I was uh, founding the fund, you know, I, I tried to do my research um, about the values of mutual aid that we would uh, that we would use as our um, our guiding posts for creating this organization. Um, so the the first that one that comes to mind is this idea of solidarity and not charity. Um, and I define that as, you know, understanding that um, it's not like there's one group of people that needs help and one group of people that provides help. We all shift between roles at different points in our lives, uh, even throughout the same day. 
And I think that's really important to me uh, uh, as a value, you know, as a mental health care provider who is also a consumer of mental health services. And, um, uh, you know, that's something I try to impart to my clients as well. Um, and I think that is also um, a, a big principle of mutual aid is this idea of inhabiting multiple roles um, and both giving and receiving help. Um, and also, you know, within this concept of solidarity and not charity um, is an intentional move away from um, traditional um, ideas and avenues of philanthropy rooted in capitalism, where you have wealthy benefactors bestowing aid on um, specific people or groups of people who are deemed deserving. Um, and solidarity is inherently different in that concept because it is, it is um standing with someone and not above someone. It's removing that hierarchy and that power structure as much as possible and trusting people to define the needs that they have um, and to you know, use the resources that we have to respond to those needs. Mm -hmm. So as I understand it, it, rather than it being a like top down yes. type of structure, it's more like bottom up, but also horizontal. Like yes. Mm -hmm. That is really what we aim for is that horizontal approach, you know, reaching out and building relationships within the community um, and using those relationships to uh, distribute resources equitably. Mm -hmm. In what ways is mutual aid a response in some ways to capitalism? And in what ways is mutual aid rooted in anarchist thought? Yeah, so that's there's a lot to unpack there. I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm so for for some background, um, I I was introduced to the concept of mutual aid actually um, by way of the prison abolition movement, um, which um, I came to uh, read a lot about that movement um, through my work at, at Integral Care. Um, uh, we talked, and, and you've also worked for integral care too, so I think you can understand a lot of this. But um, mm -hmm. my job at integral care was um, working primarily with folks that were either uninsured or were on Medicare and Medicaid. A lot of the folks that I worked with um, had multiple disabilities, um, and most of them were living in extreme poverty. Um, and seeing what, uh, you know, because of, of my privilege, that was um, something that I really hadn't seen before that job and seeing how the poorest people in this country live on a day-to-day -day basis, um, seeing how people with severe mental illness live <clears throat> on a day-to-day -day basis um, was, in a word, radicalizing for me. Um, and it made me extremely angry and kind of despairing. <laughs> and um, it made me search for answers and frameworks to help explain what I was seeing, but also give me a way to not feel hopeless about it. Um, and that was where I um, got really into prison abolition um, as like, you know, into like the answer that I found in that. Um, so abolition, you know, is, you know, about tearing down that carceral system, you know, imagining a world without police and prisons, but it's also a positive project about <clears throat> building the systems that we want to see to create that world without prisons and police, um, trying to prefigure um, that world now as much as we can. Um, and I think that's where mutual aid comes in as a concept. Um, 
because and I think it is it is rooted in anarchist thought in some ways because it asks that question you know of what can people do for each other without state support um, and there are a lot of oppressed communities that have had to figure out how to live without state support um, mm-hmm. who the state has abandoned um, or is actively trying to destroy um, and I think mutual aid is really just learning from those communities and the way that they have innovated. Um, in order to survive and trying to um, apply those those solutions to create a safety net within communities uh, when the state has neglected to do so. Mm-hmm. It sounds like in some ways similar to like ontological anarchy. I don't know if you're familiar with any of the writings of Hakeem Bey, um, but I, I love his stuff. And ontological anarchy basically says that there's no way we can really know, like, quote, the true nature of things. And therefore, anything can only be founded on nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then out of nothing, we can make something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, um, I think that is um, part of what was helpful for me to to find through these um, these theories and also the the practice of abolition and the practice of mutual aid was just what do you do when you feel that that sinking feeling of free fall of mm-hmm. God, there's there's nothing for that there's nothing that these people need what resources are there and I think that was um, maybe a feeling you remember <laughs> from from working at animal care but yes. I felt that way a lot with my clients. It was, you know, terrifying, you know, and I think that came a lot from, from empathizing with their situation, even for a second. And it just, you know, really um, put me in a place of, of despair. And I, I think that um, building up from nothing and how to do that is something that was really, um, really necessary for me at that point in my career and in my um understanding of, of the way the world works. Um, when someone that I've, I've read a lot that has been really helpful is um, Maryam Kaba, who's a prison abolitionist and organizer. Um, she uh, founded an organization called Survived and Punished that works with um, survivors of domestic violence that have been um, incarcerated for defending themselves against an abuser. And um, she often says that hope is a discipline. Um, and that's something that really resonated with me um, as um, you know, thinking about mutual aid as that discipline of practicing hope right. and trying to build something better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I know exactly what you mean by that feeling. It's just this overwhelming helplessness. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you, can't, you can't do anything about this person's struggling. I mean, yeah. You know, it's it's very frustrating. And I can see where that would have impacted and maybe like shifted a worldview in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not like I didn't know that we had an issue with the lack of a social safety net right. in this country before then. Uh, but seeing the reality of it, um, it hits different. <laughs> I'll mm-hmm. say that. Absolutely. So we live in an individualistic and capitalistic society in which the idea of you know, survival of the fittest is rampant and is often used as a means of justifying marginalization in a variety of ways, including poverty, gender inequality, uh, racism, and even war. 
Um, however, natural law lends more to the co cooperation and connection of communities with the formation of horizontal networks of solidarity versus top-down uh, power structures. We can see these sorts of cooperatives in all of nature. Um, I was watching silly videos the other day, and it reminds me of this video I saw uh, in which a lion was being surrounded by a clan of hyenas, which I learned something too. I learned that a, that a group of hyenas is called a clan. Uh, and doing this. <laughs> and uh, anyway, this, this lion was dangerously outnumbered and facing certain death. At the last second, the lion's pride ran up on the hyenas and chased the clan of hyenas off, saving the lion that was in distress. What are your thoughts in general about topics of individualism, capitalism, and social solidarity? And more specifically, what are your thoughts about these topics as it applies to mental health accessibility and mutual aid? Yeah, that's a, a really great question. I love that question. Um, and I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> But, um, uh, you know, I think really my, my experiences at Interval Care um, instilled this belief that, you know, we, we can judge a society's morality based on how that society cares for people that can't care for themselves. Um, and, and also really taught me this idea that sanity in a lot of ways is a total lottery, you know, like it's, mm -hmm. It's really something, you know, and I, I think facing that can be really um, destabilizing and scary for people, but it's, it's true, you know, like there's a lot we don't know about mental illness and a lot that is out of someone's control when it comes to maintaining their mental health. Um, and um, I guess in short, like I could kind of give a shit if it goes against the natural order. Like I'm not really very interested in it. Right, right what is the natural order of things and do, you know, left to our, our base instincts, are humans competitive or cooperative? Like I can right. kind of give a shit, but right. I mean, it uh, really ultimately doesn't matter. If, like, ultimately it doesn't matter to me because like we are intelligent creatures and we, um, you know, the, the collective project of humanity is deciding what kind of world we want to build and right. our intelligence allows us to do that. And we're not, um, you know, it, it, in, in some ways we are dependent on our base instincts, but in a lot of ways we're not, especially collectively and especially thinking long-term, you know, uh, uh, the long-term project of society building, you know, we are, we are a lot more than our, our base instincts. Um, also Loki, I'm, I'm Jewish. So that social Darwinism stuff uh, <laughs> never really passed the smell test for me. <laughs> so um, that's, so that's Nazi stuff. <laughs> so um, yeah. early on, I was just like, Ooh, yeah, that's, um, it's not going to, that hasn't played out well <laughs> yeah, yeah. for my people. Um, so I think that, um, and then in addition to that, you know, capitalism ties your worth to economic productivity. Right. And there are groups of people that are just always going to lose in that system. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I worked with a lot of folks that are disabled and through that, um, you know, became interested in the disability rights movement. And I think there's a lot that that movement articulates about, um, you know, why that concept of tying um, human worth to economic productivity is um, inhumane. And it's also just kind of bullshit. <laughs> it's kind of the least effective way to understand um, human worth. And I think that, um, you know, I believe that people have value regardless of their economic productivity right. um, and that they deserve a dignified life regardless of that, um, which is, 
you know, an inherently anti-capitalist belief, I think, in some ways. Um, and, you know, that being said, I do think that humans are fundamentally social and interdependent right. creatures. You know, I think that we, you know, more so than a lot of other species are profoundly dependent on caretakers for a good portion of our lives, both at the beginning of our lives and at the end of our lives and frequently in the middle of our lives, True. too. Um, we, we literally cannot survive without other people. Um, and I think social solidarity and, um, and mutual aid just kind of acknowledges that as a fact. Um, and um, another, another uh, person's writing that I have found really helpful is um, Eve Ewing, who's a professor at the University of Chicago and um, does a lot of research around um, school closures in Chicago and that impact on uh, Black children um, in that region. And um, she's a, a sociologist and a, a really phenomenal poet and writer as well. Um, and she did an interview with Miriam Kaba, who I mentioned before. Um, and in that interview, um, Ewing says um, something, to, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it was just something to the effect of like, everything worth doing is done with other people. Um, and I think that's something that really um, I thought about a lot when I was trying to um, figure out how to how to make HX Mental Health Fund work. And I think something that uh, that I realized early on was that the organization um, couldn't really become real for me until I involved other people in that organizing process and that, mm -hmm. you know, mutual aid is, is about building relationships with your community and that step one of any mutual aid project before any money gets involved or, or really even before an organization gets off the ground, it's just going to be, you know, thinking about the relationships that you have and how to build those relationships and um, how to, and, and thinking about uh, who you are accountable to. Um, and that's where other people are necessary is because, you know, you have to be accountable to, to someone <laughs> and you have to be accountable to your community to work effectively. Yeah, absolutely. That was okay. a long answer. <laughs> no, that was a good answer. Um, thank you for entertaining that question. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I love talking about this stuff. I, I love <laughs> So has COVID impacted the availability of mutual aid? Yeah, I think um, what was what was really cool to see um, and really the inspiration for ATAX Mental Health Fund was seeing a lot of mutual aid groups crop up in response to COVID. And I think for a lot of people, you know, when, when I think about radicalizing events, you know, for me, it was working at rural care and seeing what extreme poverty looks like face to face. Um, for a lot of people, I think it was COVID, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was, it, it really laid bare the lack of a social safety net that exists in this country. Um, and I think people that may not have had to, um, to think about that before had to think about it. And also, I think it, um, I think it revealed in a lot of ways, um, the, the states, not just the state of Texas, but like the nation state of the United States. Um, mm -hmm you know, the, the capacity of the state to help. And it, I think it really sunk, sunk in for a lot of people that it's not a matter of 
want, you know, the state wants to help, but can't, but that they can help and won't, you know, the resources are there. There's, there's, um, when, when Wall Street needed a bailout, the resources were there, they found that money, you know, and I think, um, even something like increasing unemployment benefits was something that could have always been done and just wasn't, you know, I think it just really laid plain, um, a number of things, you know, the, the health disparities that exist, um, along racial lines, you know, specifically in, and also, I mean, even looking within uh, within a single city, you know, depending on what zip code you're in, you know, that could determine um, mortality, you know, from this pandemic. And I think it just, I think it was really radicalizing for a lot of people to see all these things clearly um, and play out in real time. And um, I think people go looking for answers and one of the answers they find is mutual aid. Um, and there were a lot of projects um, that started during COVID um, that were really inspiring and innovative. Uh, I want to shout out um, ATX Free Fridge Project, which um, was one of the big inspirations for COVID. Um, I did a bit of volunteering with them uh, last uh, last summer. And um, that I, I think it's just a really incredible community uh, project. And um, and then um, even just, you know, I mean, mutual aid can look like a lot of different things, you know, even something like the the buy nothing Facebook groups that sprung up and during crises, like the beginning of the pandemic and the winter storm, where really all you had access to was your immediate neighborhood. Um, just seeing the way people built those relationships and tried to meet each other's needs, you know, that is also mutual aid. And I think that these crises that we are facing together, the pandemic, and then I, you know, also the climate crisis, which became clear to Texas earlier this year. Um, right. yeah, I think those relationships and those, um, th- those relationships and those organizations that we build are, are going to become and stay, you know, more important as these crises continue. Totally. How does mutual aid with the ATX mental health fund work? And it sounds like from what you've said that you you started and maintained this organization or this this mutual aid fund? Yeah, I don't do it by myself. So I have, um, uh, I guess you call it like a board uh, mm-hmm. of uh, folks. Um, so another, I, I founded the organization um, with another um, counselor colleague, someone I knew from from grad school, uh, my friend Laura, who's great and, um, and uh, still works for integral care. She's still still in the trenches. Uh, I have mad respect for her um, and the work that she does um, as a clinician um, and as a case manager. But um, I also, uh, some folks on the board uh, work for the city housing authority, uh, work for the, the city in general in different capacities. Um, it was, um, I have some friends who um, were at um, LBJ Public Policy School who graduated um, a year or two after I did. Um, so we're also kind of thinking about these issues um, with their classmates and um, just a lot of, and I think it was also important to me that, um, you know, the people on the board are, were also consumers of mental health care ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, I also want to shout out my sister who um, is the social media savvy one of the group. She runs all of our social media accounts, which has been really um invaluable in, in building the community around the mm-hmm. mental health fund. Um, so she, she works for uh, GoDaddy 
and really understands that that world of social media that's so far from my area of expertise. <laughs> uh, and when I told her about the idea and asked her to help out, she was so game and just so ready to to jump in and that's figure awesome. this out with me. So I really I I could not do it without um, the people that um, that I I started this with, um, but. HS Mental Health Fund. Um, so one, one part of what we do is direct cash assistance um, for people to access care. So people apply to the fund, um, they fill out our request form, um, they request, um, you know, however much money they are needing uh, within our um, parameters based on usually what we're able to, to give. And um, then we have folks um, rate the urgency of their need. And, and that was really, you know, trying to figure out a way to remove hierarchy as much as possible and give people, um, give our requesters the agency to determine how urgent their need is and then prioritizing requests based on that urgency rating. Um, so trying to make that distribution process as collaborative as possible, um, which is really hard to do, but yeah. we, we are trying. Um, and um and yeah, and then, you know, myself and the rest of the team, you know, maintain the, um, the fund. We have a fiscal sponsor um, called the Open Collective Foundation. Um, open Collective is an, um, an open source platform for um, organizations and specifically for, um, it's a fundraising platform. Um, so we um, have our own fundraising uh, page where people um, donate and that's where we do all our fundraising through. Um, and this or our organization is part of the open collective foundation so um by through fiscal sponsorship um our donations are tax deductible and it basically keeps everything above board tax-wise and financially um without us having to be tax experts ourselves because we are not we're, we're counselors <laughs> you know? um although i do have uh, one of one of the board members is the, our, our budget guy and whenever i have tax tax questions i will ask um Dashel, who's the, the budget guy on the board. <laughs> um, but um, Open Collective has been like so, so supportive of us um, from day one. And we, um, and a big part of, I, I think, when you're doing direct cash assistance, a big question and a big barrier, I think, to this kind of organizing is what do you do about taxes? What do you do about money? Where do you keep the money? You know, all that, all that complicated stuff, um, that bureaucracy. And um, our fiscal sponsor, Open Collective, just really allows us to focus on the organizing work itself and, um, you know, just have this built-in method of transparency for all of our um, financial, um, all of our finances. Yeah. Yeah, I'd imagine that's very difficult, and I'm glad you have a guy for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's enormously helpful, especially as a new organization. Um, and also, it's another it's another method of accountability, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and Open Collective has similar values, I think, in in the way that it views transparency and accountability. You know, every transaction that we have is um, you can it's all public. You can see it from donors. You know, people can make their account, and we have our requesters leave out any identifying information to protect their privacy. Um, but you can see the complete record. And that is something that is built into the platform. So it's not something that we have to spend um, a ton of, of resources doing. Um, and that allows us to use resources elsewhere, which is great. Yeah, that's awesome. So how would one go about making a donation to the ATX Mental Health Fund? 
Yeah, so um, you can go to our Open Collective page, which is just, you know, opencollective.com slash ATX Um, There's a couple different ways to donate. You can become a sustaining donor, which um, it basically involves a monthly donation um, to ATX Mental Health Fund. That's it's so helpful because that allows us to plan and project out how much we're going to be able to distribute every month. Um, and um, or you can make a one time donation. Um, we also um, uh, usually at some point uh, at one point or another have some kind of fundraiser going on. Um, so coming up um, later, uh, I believe next week, we're going to have a raffle on our Instagram. Um, we've gotten a lot of support from the uh, from local businesses and artists in Austin um, throughout the, the time that we've been active. And um, one of the ways that they support us is um, by donating um, art and uh, jewelry and any manner of beautiful things to um, our raffles and auctions that we do through social media. And that's one of the ways that we fundraise. Um, so if you, um, it's, a, it's a jewelry auction coming up. So if you're cool. looking for a nice pair of, of earrings or a beautiful necklace from a local artist, um, check out our Instagram page. Cool. Will you send me the Instagram page? I uh, will. Yeah. All our, all our social media, I think it's all the handle, you know, at ATX Mental Health Fund. Um, okay. Except on Twitter, I think it's ATXMH Fund because of character limits. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And so that's in making a donation. Now you had mentioned to request assistance, there's a form that somebody would need to fill out. Where is that located on your website? Yeah, so it's on our website. It's on our link tree, which is um, can be accessed on all our social media pages. Um, and the request form, um, it's just a Google form. It's pretty short to fill out. Um, the, our goals in, in creating that was really to make it trauma-informed. Um, and that was a lot of, of what I worked on uh, initially with um, Laura, my, my counselor colleague, um, just trying to make that, um, that process of requesting um, financial assistance, uh, a trauma-informed process. So we really try to make it so that, you know, as much as people are comfortable disclosing about their situation, they can disclose and you know, they don't have to rehash their trauma history if they don't right. want to. Um, right. Yeah. And then we also, you know, are, have been navigating that balance between, uh, you know, knowing that um, documentation can be a barrier for um, accessing aid, um, right. especially through traditional power structures. Um, but we also do need to like confirm some things, you know, like that a person yeah. is real and that they live in Austin. Um, so we, we've tried to right. strike that balance, just giving people a lot of different options for what that documentation can look like. So those are some of the ways that we've tried to make that request process um, accessible and equitable. Cool. I'm glad y'all took that into consideration. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some misconceptions people have about mutual aid? Um, I, this is, this is a, a question that, I don't know, I think a lot of that, especially as it kind of gains traction as a concept, and I think like anything else, uh, it has a, a, it has the potential to be co-opted by capitalism. <laughs> um, and I think, uh, you know, what I see sometimes is, um, you know, I, and I, I really want to try like not to gatekeep because I do think mutual aid can look a lot of different ways. Um, but I think like, um, you know, traditional giving and, and traditional like corporate philanthropy, it's not mutual aid. Like it's, it's not, you know, <laughs> calling it that is inaccurate. Um, so I think people do sometimes struggle to uh, remove that traditional philanthropy framework from mutual aid and distinguish between 
the two. Um, and I think looking at um, power structure is a, a good way of, of thinking about that. And, and of course, like it gets, it gets muddy like anything else when you try to apply theory to reality. But, uh, you know, there, there is a difference. And I think it's an important um, thing to distinguish um, between those two things. Um, and the concept of solidarity, I think, is helpful in distinguishing um, the difference. Um, I also think people think that mutual aid is only uh, financial, which is uh, not the case at all. Um, there's, uh, I actually think, it, you know, most of the time it's not a financial, um, a, a financial action. Um, but uh, I think an example is the Atex Mental Health Fund. We have our request form and, and fund distribution, and that is the main function. But we also have a program called uh, the Mental Health Matchup. Um, which just connects community members um, to be mental health supports for each other. Um, that's just another form to fill out on our link tree. And we're really trying to get some more people to join the matchup right now. So I wanted to shout that out. But I think that's a great example of what non-financial mutual aid can look like, yeah. you know, just building relationships, offering mutual support, um, even if that's just, you know, a check-in text message and a listening ear, which is what a lot of people need right now, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, do you or how do you incorporate your thoughts about mental health accessibility and mutual aid into your practice with clients? Yeah, so I've talked a lot about this. Um, I think there's a lot of the um, the logistics stuff is just, you know, I want, I want to be an accessible provider. Offering a sliding scale and having multiple avenues for people to access that sliding scale rate is important to me. Um, trying to be transparent about clients with um, the financial aspects of this process and trying to encourage um, transparency on their part. So, cause I, I really just don't want it to be a stressor for people, but also it is my living. <laughs> and I think that's right. a, that's a tough line to walk. And I think I'm still, uh, you know, I'm always thinking about different ways to live my values in that way. Um, another thing um, that I think I've learned um, over the course of my career so far is that uh, the advocacy work and the mutual aid work that I do is what makes my clinical work sustainable for me. Um, there's only so many times that you can hear, uh, you know, people facing the same crisis over and over and over and crises that exist because of um, structural oppression. Uh, there's only so many times that you can hear that from my clients from the people that I care about, you know, and the people in my own life before you start to lose it a little bit and the work becomes unsustainable. And I think for me, um, what makes that sustainable is feeling like I am doing something about it um, structurally to change things um, as much as I can. And I think that for me, that means um, being involved in things bigger than just me as one provider, because I can't change the world by myself, <laughs> you know, right. other people to do that. And um, I think looking to my community um, and being involved in that advocacy of mutual aid is what um, gives me that hope and that, um, that energy allows me to channel that, that frustration to something um, that feels positive and feels um feels good instead of despair, you know? Yeah, creating hope, kind of like you had said earlier. Yeah, yeah, hope is a discipline. And mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is 
that is the discipline for me is, um, you know, doing this work as a way of making the clinical work sustainable. Okay. Okay. Well, switching gears to you as a therapist for a little bit, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Sure. So I, um, I started my career at Nurgle Care, um, which does tend to work with marginalized communities um, that are facing, um, you know, different oppressions, multiple different oppressions at once. Um, so a lot of my experience working with, uh, with those folks was right at the beginning of, of my career um, through that job at Integral Care. Um, and I think it's something that, um, you know, I try when I'm thinking about how I'm developing myself as a therapist, um, that um, social justice lens and that um, cultural uh, responsiveness is something that I try to focus on in the training that I do. And, um, you know, I think it's as, as a white therapist, you know, that's always going to be something that's in the room with my um, clients or people of color. And I think it's something that I have to be consciously aware of. And that process of unlearning white supremacy, it has to be an active one. And it's, you know, it's something that I will be doing for the entirety of my career. So I think that's a, a big part of, of the um, the work that I do and the training that I do is increasing my responsiveness to those marginalized populations. Okay, got it. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And also what about on an ongoing basis? Um, so my intake sessions, um, I always say it's kind of like a get to know you session. Um, I will usually try to start by um, understanding what is bringing my clients to therapy, you know, understanding the different issues that, um, that brought them to, um, you know, seek help in this way and, and acknowledging, you know, the, the challenge of that, of finding help once you start to seek it. And also, um, you know, the courage it takes to, um, try to try to fix it, you know, to mm -hmm. see what's going on and, 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 you know, really try to face it and fix it. Um, and um, so I'll kind of go through um, understanding the history of each individual issue that has, um, you know, brought a client to counseling. Um, I always ask about trauma because um, that's a, a big part of what I do is trauma processing and, um, you know, holding space for that and being um, trauma informed in my approach, even if I'm not doing trauma processing, still having a trauma informed um, practice. Um, and on an ongoing basis, um, I try to be very collaborative in my treatment planning. Um, so I think a big part of the first session is understanding what a client's goals are for therapy and then talking with them, you know, bringing my expertise to the table, talking with them about the different um, modalities we might use together, you know, what therapy is going to look like for them and getting their feedback on that. And then just trying to do the work, you know, I think I, yeah. I try to balance that, um, being present with people while they um, while they heal and while they experience things in their life that happen in the present, while also trying to um, you know stay on track for those goals. And you know if that means diving a bit further into the past, you know, making room for that as well. Okay. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you? 
Um, the adjective I hear the most is probably bubbly. <laughs> I think that I tend to, to come off that way. Um, and I think that people that, you know, are looking for uh, the, the Rogerian concept of unconditional positive regard is very important to me. Uh, that is, that is essential to my practice. So I think I always try to be, um, you know, positive and, and recognize my, my client's strengths. Um, and I think that to me, that's essential to being effective as a therapist. Uh, I think I, I try to be pretty direct. Um, and, um, you know, some clients might need a more directive approach than others, you know, especially um, some of my adolescents um, and adults who it's their first time in therapy when they're like, what, what is this? You know, and it's like, right, oh, well, yeah. we're going to learn that together, you know, what therapy looks like for you. Um, so sometimes, you know, sessions can look like me, you know, having in mind a specific, um, you know, concept or activity. I try to do a lot of psychoeducation. Um, I'm not really into the, the man behind the curtain approach to therapy. Um, <laughs> I want my clients to like, if I am, if I am doing an intervention, I want my clients to understand what that intervention is and, you know, as much theory behind it as they're interested in and, um, and just have that transparency and that collaboration. Um, and I think the other, the other thing I get a lot is I, I try to be, um, as Socratic as possible. So like, I, if I, I, I don't want to have to say the insights, even if I think I know what it is, I would like to ask the right questions to get someone there themselves, because people always, um, I feel like it's all, learning is always more effective and insight is always more effective when people can get there on their own instead of just someone in the armchair telling you <laughs> what, um, what you're feeling or why you're feeling it. So um, I try to use a lot of Socratic techniques just to ask ask good questions and um, that that help people get to that insight um, on their own. Uh, yeah. 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 I love, love that approach. Um, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Yeah. I would say probably laugh more than cry. Um, and, and I think for me, you know, sharing, sharing tears with clients, I think is, uh, it's something that, obviously happens because we're all human, you know? Um, but I think a lot of times I, I will try to, uh, be transparent with my emotions, but also, uh, for clients, especially that are particularly uh, people pleasing or have certain trauma responses to, um, witnessing someone else's, um, emotional response. I think I try to just be conscious of each individual clients, um, needs around that and try to, um, you know, be conscious of my own emotional responses and what I'm showing on my face. Um, cause I don't want my clients to ever feel like they have to hold space for me. Um, right. but humor is a, a big part of how we cope with life and how I cope with life. And I think it's, um, absolutely necessary to be able to share that with my clients, uh, and just show up as a person with them. Totally. Totally. Um, you mentioned the, the phrase holding space a few times. And one of the questions that I ask people and that I'll ask you now is, how do you define holding space for someone? Yeah. It's one of those phrases that we use is kind of a shorthand for something that I think therapists, like we all, we all kind of feel it, but it is really hard to describe. Um, mm -hmm. I think for me, it means just being present with people, trying to um, 
provide validation for their emotional experience that they're having um, and witnessing that. You know, I think a big a big thing that I learned early on it, in um, that first job at Interval Care was just the I saw the value in, in witnessing um, because sometimes that was all I could do, you know, was witness what someone was going through. Um, so I think witnessing is a, a, and just being seen is a big part of, of holding space. Um, and just trying to understand and empathize with my clients without necessarily putting the burden on them to have to explain themselves. You know, I think, and that's where, that's where that skill of empathy, um, comes into play, you know, and I think that's something that, um, that is, you know, I'm always learning and practicing as a therapist. So yeah, that combination of like being present and validation and empathy, that's all, all under the umbrella of holding space. I think. Got it. Got it. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Um, so my supervisor, Natasha is amazing. Um, I, the best advice I have received from her um, early, well, I guess maybe not early on, further along than honestly it should, it should have been. Um, I was really um, trying to figure out self-care for me as a, as a clinician. And I remember having a conversation with Natasha um, in supervision where I was, I was explaining um, how it was, it was hard for me to um, come home and just like, you know, of all, of all the things I wanted to do, just like make myself dinner or like do these like basic things at the end of the day that make me feel better, but also take effort. Um, And I think for me, it was like, I felt weird putting effort and making it like a priority to like do these basic things, like take care of myself, like the mundane things, you know, Mm -hmm. it just feels, especially when you're dealing with crisis every day, it feels so unimportant. And I think she really talked about um, just like giving myself permission to, um, to put that effort into taking care of myself and approach it like I would approach other areas of my life um, that, you know, require that effort and energy. Um, And I think that was just so helpful to think about that idea of like giving myself permission to like prioritize those mundane tasks. um, And that like, that was a worthwhile use of my time. Um, I think I really needed to hear that at that point in, in my Absolutely. career. And I think I, I go back to that advice a lot with my own clients when I see them, you know, when we're talking about self-care and how to prioritize those mundane but essential things that keep you going, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I guess I guess that's the answer. I was going to shout out my, my boss, Elise, right now, um, who just gave me some great advice. Uh, this past week, actually, we're doing an uh, IFS um, training and practice session, and um, she talked about trying to remove agenda as much as possible in a session and go with the client system to um, understand what they're needing. Um, and I think that's something that I do uh, that, that I have had have had to learn and. Um, as a, as a therapist is how to remove my own agenda and make that process collaborative. And, um, I don't know, I've heard it a lot, but somehow like hearing it from her this past week, like it really clicked. And in the context of IFS, like applying that to this modality, like it's really clicked for me, um, 
but she's an incredible therapist and I just I so appreciate um my coworkers and the support and insight I get from them uh, whenever we are whenever we're together well it's always good to have coworkers that you you know or just other therapists around you that you know and trust you know yeah yeah I feel really really lucky to be at this practice um that just aligns with my values so much and other clinicians that are like-minded um, and also brilliant. <laughs> and then I can learn so much from. Cool. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Mm, so much. <laughs> I feel like I learned things from all of my clients. Um, I think I get a lot of windows into different experiences. Um, and um I think uh, one, of, one of the reasons that I uh, came into therapy, I think, was because my, my parents are what, what some therapists would call cycle breakers, and what they always refer to as cycle breakers. Um, you know, how do you end the cycle of generational trauma? And I think a lot of um, what I love about this work and what I, what I talk about with my clients is just that question of how, how do you end that cycle? and be that cycle breaker. Um, and I think I came into it, um, you know, understanding my parents' experience um, to an ex- to the extent that I could, um, you know, growing up. But also, I think, um, you know, one of the great projects of my career has been understanding that, you know, the answer to that question of how do you break that cycle? And I think within that, there's a lot about you know, how do you process trauma in a way to, um, you know, truly be in the present? And how do you integrate the different parts of yourselves, or at least, you know, have compassion for the different parts of yourselves, um, so that you can feel whole and, and show up for people um, as your whole self. And yeah, I don't know, I, I think I've, I, there are a lot of different answers to that and I learn a different one with every client. Uh, Nice. Yeah. I think it's so important, you know. Mm -hmm. It really is. And I, and I really do see it as a a two-way street. Like I, I think I, I, I learn so much like genuinely from every person that I interact with both other therapists and my clients. Um, And I think, you know, I, I hope that they learn as much from me as I from them, but um, yeah. I, I find a lot of value in that. And, and, and just, you know, the privilege of having this job where I get to think so deeply about things all the time. Like, I just, I love thinking about things, and I love, <laughs> so, you know, being with people who show up and think about how, you know, how to, how to improve themselves, you know, every day, like that is such a privilege. And, um, and through that, like I learned a lot about how to uh, about myself and how to um, you know work on myself and yeah, it goes both ways definitely. Yeah. So I know you were just talking about self care a few minutes ago. What do you do to take care of yourself? Um, I think the uh, the mutual aid work is a big part of that, making the work sustainable mm-hmm. um, mentally and emotionally. Um, having very firm boundaries with my time is a big deal to me. Um, I, uh, you know, keeping firm to that schedule, I've set myself about when my working hours are. Um, sleep is so important. <laughs> and this is something that I really haven't even 
I mean, since since when I was working in other settings, um, I had less control over my schedule. I got a lot less sleep and I was a lot less um, happy and uh, fulfilled as a person, I think. Um, and one of the great things about about the practice I'm at now is I, I can't set my own schedule. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll work two evenings a week and then I get to sleep in a little bit some days and I, I try not to have any sessions before 10 a.m. And that is that is the ultimate self-care. It's just that extra like hour of sleep is incredible for my health and, and well-being. Um, and um, just spending time with friends too. Spending time with friends and family is what like sustains me and um, gives me that energy to um, to show up for my clients and also just to um, you know, do that. And also I've, I've done my own therapy. I'm currently in the process of, um, finding a, a new therapist, although I still, therapists work, you have different therapists for different things, but, um, <laughs> I have a therapist that I worked with that really got me through, um, like grad school and, and that first like year, year and a half after, um, after, you know, of my career. And, um, I'm really grateful to her, um, for that help and, um, and just for holding space for me when I really needed it. And that is a big part of my self-care as well. Well, you answered that question already. <laughs> um, <laughs> Have I done therapy myself? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I have. <laughs> how would you define happiness? Um, I think for me, happiness really um, is... I, I think a lot of it comes from the people in my life. Um, my relationships are really important to me, um, especially my my family and my friendships. Um, and I think that's a big part of what brings me happiness. Um, I think engaging with art um, that makes me feel uh, a certain way, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. is really important, specifically music and live music. Like, I think that um, I... In some ways, I am at my happiness, at my happiest when I am at a show and just sharing that experience with other people. And um, reading also is like a big thing that is, it's like a self care thing. And it also just, it, it brings me so much joy. Um, and writing and sharing that with other people is another thing that makes me happy. So I think it's like yeah, that combination of, uh, you know, fulfillment in my work and uh, the people in my life. Uh, and um, my creative outlets and my experience of other people's creativity, like all, all that combined just makes yeah. for feeling happiness. But also happiness, it's, it's a mood and it's, you know, transient in a lot of ways and it's um, never going to be there all the time. And I think part of, part of happiness is just, you know, learning how to be present with it when it's here um, mm -hmm. and living with the idea that it will not always be here. And um, I'll let you know when I figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we can have a podcast specifically on that. <laughs> I hope you're like, no, I found the answer. <laughs> um, well, Samantha, is there anything else you think would be good for a potential client or other therapist to know about you and or mental health accessibility and mutual aid? I don't know if there's anything else about me. I think these questions were awesome, and I think I, I covered a lot of it. Um, for mutual aid, I would just really encourage people, like, if you have an idea or if you have, um, you know, an a issue or a disparity that you see in your community, like, 
it is it is easier than you might think and, and harder in some ways. But I, I really just encourage people to, you know, to innovate and get creative and build relationships with other people that can hold you accountable while you try to uh, build something new. Um, and that's been a really, you know, joyful experience for me. And I think that, um, I don't know, I just want to, I just want to say like, there's nothing very special about me or even, you know, ATX Mental Health Fund or any of the, I mean, of course, I think the people on the board are special because I love them. <laughs> but, um, but really, like, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have like any, um, any like unique quality that makes us able to do this. Like, I really think anyone can do this um, with the right accountability and, um, and, you know, with trying to make that effort in good faith. And I, I think it's, um, it's what we need, you know, as, as, uh, as people to, we, we need a million HX mental health funds all over the globe. <laughs> um, to I keep totally building agree. new things. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show, Samantha. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a really awesome conversation. And I, I love any opportunity to talk about this stuff. The next Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring Lisa Wheeler, licensed professional counselor, who will be discussing her practice in an area of specialty, clients with non-ordinary experiences. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.